This is episode 45 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and we'll be switching things up for this episode as Kara is going to interview co-hosts Shanna Burnett and I as we spend the first part of this episode just getting to know your Clean Sport Collective co-hosts, and then we'll spend the last part of the episode answering your doping questions, listener questions that we pulled from your social media comments and on this one, we had some fun. We grabbed, Shanna grabbed a margarita, Kara grabbed a beer, and I had a glass of wine as we had fun chatting about our backgrounds. I hope you enjoy this. I think it was fun for Kara to be the primary host, and I think you'll enjoy this episode as well. So grab your drink of choice from home and listen in. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Kara Goucher here with the Clean Sport Collective podcast. I'm super excited about our episode today. We're doing something a little different. We are going to get to know my co-host a little bit better, Shanna Burnett, the actual founder of Clean Sport Collective, and Chris McClung, the real hero on the podcast. So we're going to get to know them a little bit better, and then we're going to answer some listeners' questions. So Shanna, Chris, how are you guys doing today? Oh, we're doing great. <laughs> Excited, yeah. excited to see you, quarantine style. It is. It is nice to see you guys. So we, before we dive into your guys' past and find out what made you who you are, well, I want to kind of know what's going on with you guys with the quarantine and your business lives and your family lives. You both have three children. So we'll start with you, Shanna. Um, tell us about your full-time job. I mean, you have, you have a million jobs. What is your actual official job that pays you? And how is it going right now with everything going on and being stuck at home and having to homeschool three children? Oh, yeah. So my official job is ultra um, running. I do all the PR and communications. And, you know, that one has been good. Uh, I'll say that VF, who is our parent company, they own North Face, they own Vans. Uh, Dickies, uh, they've been really great to work with. Um, I know a lot of like running shoe brands and a lot of running brands in general have been having fur furloughs or layoffs, but we've been really blessed with VF. Like they're doing everything to make sure that their employees are still employed. I mean, we're even they're even making sure that all of their retail employees are still employed now, at least through the end of this month. So. That takes a lot of the fear away because I think every day the hardest thing to, you know, like obviously the health and the sickness aside, which is a big deal, is every day wake, people wake up thinking if they're going to be unemployed. Um, and I think that's really scary for a lot of people. And, and especially in this running industry, I mean, so many small retail specialty retailers, like it freaks us out because they're so they they give so much to the local communities. And then they can't open their doors. And a lot of them have been creative with like curbside pickup and, you know, the ones that are doing well with online. I mean, I know Chris can talk more about this, um, but it's we're trying to find ways that we can help them, especially. So that's been, um, you know, challenging, but then also like gratifying, just like seeing how we can help them in whatever way we can. And then I think we've like just shifted that everyone is it's more entrepreneurial spirit. Everyone's jumping in on no matter what your lane was before, everyone's jumping in to help each other now because it is like a good time for productivity, but then you're also seeing that you're, you have a hand in everything. 
So that is taking a lot of time. And then I am getting a real good, you know, C minus average on homeschool. <laughs> Super crushing that. Uh, <laughs> some days I like wake up and we're like, good. I'll like have some wording meetings and then I'll get to homeschooling. And other days I'm like creativity. guys. <laughs> Don't turn on any devices and you just be creative in science. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those uh, get some leaves and exploring. Um, so that's my day to day. And then, you know, coffee and some wine, you know, always good to have on hand. <laughs> How old are your kids, Shanna? Give us their ages. So I have a daughter that just turned nine um, two days ago, right? Three days ago. And then a son who is six, almost seven. And then the ultimate challenge, the freaking crazy two-year-old. That literally just puts another level into the day. Like, I feel like if I could just homeschool the nice, peaceful ones, you know, minus their fighting, and then work instead of having a terror, like, bust in and, like, you know, scream at me for something. So, you know, it's it's all angles all day, every day. <laughs> and then on top of that, you are also my agent. Oh, yes. And uh, even though things are quiet right now, I am working on a big project and you're helping me with that. And then you also um, you're the wrangler. You're the one that gets everyone to agree to come on the Clean Sport Collective podcast. Yes. So <laughs> I think like some days I just kind of have to like take a deep breath. Right. You know, and um, and hope for the best. I mean, like, yeah, with you, I think it's been I mean, you're so easy and Luckily, we have like so much buttoned up so, so far. So it's been a good like little rest period. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about your project, um, which you will, all won't know about for a little while. But when you do, you'll be super excited. And then, yeah, the clean sport. I mean, I think this is just such an interesting time because so many athletes can't compete right now. So you're really finding just like the local restaurants or the local specialty retailers the ones, the athletes that are super creative in this time and thinking about avenues to inspire or motivate, they're like crushing. Um, like you with your, you know, with your firesides with Kara. I think that's so fun to see with Emma, with her like daily Instagram live. I think that that is really injecting a lot of hope into people because the reality is, is the events are canceled and we don't know when they're going to start. Again, but I think that athletes are really showing their worth that are going above and beyond right now. Yeah, it's a tough time to be a professional athlete. Chris and I actually talked about that before we started recording. And <clears throat> maybe we'll circle back to that a little bit. Just it's tough when your job is to compete. and There's no competitions. But I'm now to nervous about sponsorships. Yeah, I feel nervous. I, I feel um, nervous because I, I my income is based on sponsorship, but also relieved that I'm not um, dependent on appearance fees anymore. Um, and I just feel so badly. And, um, a lot of the girls coming up or girls, women coming out of CU have been asking me for advice. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you right now. You know, it's such a difficult time. Like I just, I really, I mean, you know, everyone is struggling. It's not just athletes, but definitely since we tend to focus on athletes, it's, it's a really hard road for them right now. It's so hard. And I think that there needs to be attention there because I think so many brands right now, you know, of course, you know, doing the right thing and trying everything they can do to keep their employees. 
So I couldn't imagine right now being an athlete that was about to sign a contract when all budgets are frozen. Yeah, there's no contracts. Yeah, and athletes, we have to like, I feel like we have to talk about it because they're at such risk and jeopardy right now because contracts are, you know, either being cut or trying to be cut or not being renewed. And they're definitely not being signed unless it's, you know, like a big deal contract from one of the, you know, bigger, larger companies that can make it work. But everybody is like rethinking that. Right. My advice to athletes especially is outside of events is be very uh, cognizant on how you're engaging with people on social media, online. What are you doing to like help? Because I think that is like the ticket right now and in the foreseeable future is your value not only on the track, but off of it as well. I think we're seeing a lot of that. Like, sorry, Chris, we are going to come to you. Um, (laughs) I, I just think that when you, when you're, when you're paid to perform and you can't perform, then how do you show value? And so I do think this is going to change. You know, there's already been sort of a shift over the last few years, but it's not just about performance anymore. It's also about sharing your experience and sharing your whole journey. Um, but I think we're going to see that even more so moving forward because people, they're looking for um, inspiration. They're looking for hope on a daily basis. And um, yeah, you got to kind of enter that world and be a part of it to show that you matter because who knows? Yeah, true. And it could be a really exciting time because, you know, I mean, I was just looking at my memories last year and we were in London this time last year at the PCC, you know, anti-doping conference where they're saying the athletes voices matter. Well, guess what? Like they really matter. And I think that if like collectively all the athletes realize how much their voices matter, I think this could be a really pivotal step for athletes moving forward though, too, in a positive light. That's awesome. That's a really good point. Okay. Shifting to Chris, Chris McClung, our, our main host of the clean sport collective podcast, Chris, you also wear a million hats. You also have three children. You're trying to run a business from home. How's it been going? Overall, it's going really well. You know, for those that don't know, I'm co-owner of a business in Austin called Rogue Running. Our primary business is in-person training groups. We coach athletes really of all levels from those that are trying to do their first 5K up to marathoners and even ultra marathoners. And we have in our community here close to 800 athletes that we coach across about 40 different groups. And obviously right now we can't meet in person. So we had to very quickly pivot to a virtual world where we're providing coaching virtually, giving people workouts virtually. We've also pivoted to adding a virtual strength component to our programming. And we've got a big active Facebook group that we call Rogue Nation that has close to 600 athletes that are participating and sharing their training journeys now through through virtual means. And it was a really scary shift when we had to make that decision about three weeks ago, but it's actually gone on really well. And we've had about 90% of our community stick with us as we've shifted to a virtual world and are participating, you know, individually, virtually. And that's been really cool to see. And as I have told them, you know, we're stronger together, even though we're apart right now. And so I think that community element has been really important for people, even though they can't see each other in person. And I know it's been really important for me 
to sustain me while, you know, we're going through this. And so part of my time is spent obviously fostering that community and doing all, all things, you know, that a small business owner would do as a part of that transition, including coaching some athletes myself. And then the other part of my life is dedicated to homeschooling our three kids. We've got an 11 year old, a nine year old and a seven year old. So fifth, third and first grade that I'm trying to get through homeschooling. My wife's a doctor and she's been mostly still going into her clinic. She's a dermatologist, so is not necessarily on the front lines of the COVID crisis, but she's still seeing essential patients, treating skin cancers, things like that in her office and also doing quite a bit of telemedicine right now. And so she's mostly engaged doing that. And I'm home with the kids juggling those other two roles. But I feel like, you know, this is our fourth week, I guess, of kind of being quarantined. I feel like starting to find our groove every day feels a little bit like Groundhog Day, but not in a bad way necessarily. And the kids are adapting and I think for the most part being pretty good with me, which has been which has been nice. Fortunately, I don't have a two-year-old, Shanna. I definitely <laughs> can feel your pain having been there before. You, like Shanna, also have some other projects. Not only are you the main host of the Clean Spark Collective podcast, but you also have your own podcast called Rogue Running, and you also run quite a bit yourself. Yes, yes. I have another podcast. It's called Running Rogue, actually. Oh, sorry. And uh, yeah, we're approaching almost 180 episodes of that podcast. That podcast is, you know, I started it in December of 2016, so quite a bit of time ago, and that really focuses on, one, trying to build fans of the sport. So we talk a little bit about running current events on that podcast. But but the primary goal, the second objective is to educate people on training topics. So we cover all things running training and really trying to educate people on ways that they can improve and coach themselves or get little tips on how to be a better runner. And so that one's been going for a long time and it's still going really strong and has been a fun side project for me for a long time now. I also have a virtual podcast-based training program that has about 100 athletes globally that trains with me kind of through that podcast that that is is also a ton of fun to engage with people through that format. And you know, and then of course doing the clean sport stuff, which is a which is a passion project for me. And yes, I do run. I'm not elite by any stretch, but I've been getting out to do probably 65 to 70 miles a week over the last three or four weeks during this time. And that's been definitely self-sustaining. Yeah, we've been we've been trading workouts. I'm not as fast <laughs> as you right now, but we've been helping each other out. So I, I want to get to where your passion, both of you for clean sport comes. But I think we need to go back in time to when you guys were younger to find out what made you guys, you know, care about clean sport. So Shanna, tell us a little bit about your childhood. You were an amazing runner. You're still an amazing runner. How did you discover running? How'd you grow up through the ranks? What was your family life like? Yeah, so I was blessed because my mom and her two sisters grew up running, um, kind of the Mary Decker Slaney era. Uh, So they were pioneers, I would say, like, you know, like some of the pioneers in running in terms of just women entering the sport. Um, but also to my mom's credit, she never pushed me into it. Like every single runner we've had on this podcast, my true love was soccer. 
Um, and it was a way for me to get in shape for soccer. And then the devastation hits when you realize that you're not going to ever get a college scholarship for soccer, but you're definitely going to get one for running. Uh, so that's where that came from. I mean, I was, it was a silver state striders in Carson city, Nevada, where I grew up was looking for a fifth runner to send the, the team to USATF nationals. And that happened to be in Reno, Nevada. So that's how I, I was like, sure. I mean, I was a halfback at soccer. So I was like, the more running I could do, the better I'll be at soccer. So of course, sign me up. Um, and then I wasn't great. I mean, I like, I was all American in terms of that little age group, like nine, 10. But then I think I was like 150 at nationals and it was like really hard. I mean, I just remember crossing the finish line with a bright cherry red face and being like, why do people do this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then it just kind of grew on me. I mean, my mom was my coach um, all through my senior year of high school. I had a couple coaches like here and there, um, more side coaches, but my mom was my coach and it was really good for me because I never really went over 25 miles a week. And it wasn't this main focus of like, how good could I be in high school? Um, but it was really just to get a college scholarship and then blossom from there. Um, so yeah, I got, I, I won state for Nevada four times, uh, cross country, the mile, the two mile and 800, and then got recruited to a few different schools. I was actually going to go to Columbia university and then see you called. So that was like one of those, I remember distinctly, I've told Adam this, but I remember being like, well, obviously I'm going to an Ivy league in New York city and then being like, oh, I'll just take my my recruiting trip to CU, and I had running with of the with the Buffaloes on my way to a CU, and being like, oh hell no, I am not <laughs> going to that school. Adam Goucher is a freak. They run too much. <laughs> They're so intense. This is not going to be <laughs> the school for me. And then to make matters worse, I remember doing a long run at the Grange. Um, not Magnolia, but then getting my butt like literally handed to me um, on a long run. I've never done a long run hard until I went to see you. It was always just like LSD, LSD, long, slow distance. And then I went there and I just got trampled. I mean, I think Jay Johnson, the assistant coach at the time, had to like pick me up in the van. And then all of a sudden I was hooked between Adam Goucher running with the Buffaloes and getting dropped on a long run. Oh, and then I had 21 questions for Mark Wetmore and all the college coaches. And, you know, like he convinced me to make me a national champion. And I was like, this is it. This is this is going to be my destiny. And then I went to see you and got six stress fractures. So <laughs> that was not my destiny. Yeah, <laughs> but you you're an awesome runner. You still are. You were in the era at CU, I feel like. Mark and Heather are so much smarter now and there's so much rest prescribed and there's so much um, strength training prescribed and making sure, I don't know, just like all of these things that when we were there, it'd be like, you'd run, run a hard race and the next morning off of two hours of sleep, you'd go run Magnolia. Like they would never do that now. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, yeah. And then you'd have to do Magnolia <laughs> backwards because yeah. Magnolia front ways wasn't hard enough anymore. Yeah. They do still do that actually. But yeah, so I feel like you were there before um, when it was still sort of like, it just like, we'll just see who survives, you know, like we'll just train so hard and see who's, who survives. So 
Yeah. Anyway, I mean, you are a great athlete. You're still a great athlete. So that's how Shanna got into running. Chris, you're a running coach. In quarantine, you're running 65 to 70 miles a week, which made me cry a little because I'm only running 60 miles a week. <laughs> like, tell us a little bit about your childhood and how did you switch? Because I know you were all about that soccer life. So how did you get from that to coaching 800 people in person? Yeah, so I grew up in a little town in Texas called Rowlett, Texas. We had about 18,000 people. So small town, and there was definitely not a distance running community in that world. So it's not really something I was exposed to at all. But North Texas at the time, and still is, a really prominent soccer place. And so I got into soccer early on. I remember I played one season of t-ball when I was five years old, and I was terrible at it. And they stuck me in the outfield. I was so bad. And I remember telling my mom that I never wanted to play baseball or t-ball again. And the next season I played soccer and was hooked. And so I played soccer. That was my primary sport from from about six years old all the way until I was 18, you know, in high school. And and really, you know, went up through select and did play club soccer and all those things and just really loved the team aspect. I didn't know at the time that I was preparing for my later career as a runner because I was obviously running a lot. But, you know, at the time for us, running was punishment. And so I didn't really like running by itself. You know, I liked running in the context of a game when I didn't know it was happening to me. And, you know, and but I didn't. And I remember when I was in middle school, my mom actually encouraged me to try out for the track team. And it was interesting because in our world, again, distance wasn't really a thing. It was more of a sprint based culture. And and so that wasn't something that people talked about was milers or two milers. And so I didn't go try out for the track team because I didn't think it was something that mattered. And and to this day, I still like have a tiny bit of regret for that decision. But I never never ran in high school and didn't really get into it until college after I stopped playing soccer and wanted to do something to kind of stay in shape. And I had a friend who was a sweet mate of mine who was he'd run in cross cross country in high school and been a pretty good runner. And he said, hey, let's, you know, let's go for a run. And so I started to follow him around a little bit in training. And he was training for a half marathon in Dallas. And so I started doing some training runs with him. And fortunately, you know, 15 years of aerobic development on a soccer field put me in a pretty good spot to hang with him. And so I did, as a part of that training cycle, I did a 10K with him that, you know, wasn't fast by any standards, but just kind of made me hooked on the the whole thing and it became a competitive outlet for me where I had lost it from my soccer days. I needed a new competitive outlet. And so I started to run really to compete with myself. And as somebody who is pretty competitive, I, you know, that was a way for me to invest my competitive energy. And so I started running, you know, at 20 years of age, essentially half a life ago. (laughs) And (laughs) And, you know, haven't really looked back since. I mean, since then, I've been more or less consistent. After that first 10K, my next race, official race, was a marathon, actually. And part of that I have to credit my dad for because he did a marathon when I was in high school in Fort Worth, Texas. And that always stuck with me as something that I thought would be cool to do at some point. And and so I did it in 2001 when I was what, 22 years old, I went and ran my first marathon and, and have been more or less training consistently ever since. 
competing with myself mostly, um, but I've become a little bit of, I guess, competitive age group athlete here locally, which is fun. But it's it's become my outlet for a lot of things, not just comp- competition, but stress relief, as well as now, of course, in our community here, you know, finding that connection with other people. You, you guys are, you're both very passionate people. You feel very strongly about what you, about what you believe in. Shanna, what do you think is the most significant moment or event in your life that helped form who you are today? Well, you know, because we bond over this often. Um, it was my father's passing um, when I was a junior in college. Uh, it was a time that I was finally uninjured at CU, finding my groove. I was entering a new event, the steeplechase, um, with Jenny Simpson. And it was just so fun because I felt like Mark Wetmore was believing in me. I was finding my stride. I wasn't injured. Jenny and I would see you would compete or not compete. They would do their track workouts um, together. And then Jenny and I would go about an hour later than everybody and do a steeple workout. So I think it was the first time that, you know, Mark and Heather were really diving into the steeple and in a very dedicated way. Obviously, they had much success with Emma later. Um, and I just remember doing a steeple workout with Jenny. And, you know, obviously, she would always beat me, but it wasn't like handedly. And she like handedly beat me in this workout. And I was so depressed. Oh, my gosh. I was like drowning my sorrows in a, in a very college way with Ben and Jerry's that night. And <laughs> my mom showed up at my door. And I thought she was surprising me because we were going to go to Big 12 in Waco, Texas. Um, the next day for, uh, yeah, for big 12s. And I thought she was surprising me to come with me, but she was actually at my front door to tell me that my dad died that morning. And I didn't believe her, obviously. Like she showed up to my door and I was like, Oh my God, mom, what are you doing here? This is so exciting. And she was like, I'm sorry, your dad died this morning. And I was like, you're a freaking liar. Don't ever tell me that ever again. And she's like, I would never lie about that. And, you know, and I just, fell to the ground like sobbing I remember this and then my grandma my aunt came in and like rushed in and um held me up and I I remember that distinctly because that night instead of packing my like spike bag which I had already packed I packed black for my father's funeral and and as a mom now too like I can't even imagine the weight that she had because she was running with my father that morning that like they went on their daily three mile run um, he got inside, they were joking about something. He collapsed to the ground and died in her arms because the ambulance didn't get there quickly enough. And then for her to experience all of that, get on a plane that day, come to my house and then tell your daughter that he died. So I have a big appreciation for her and respect for her that she did all of that for me to not tell me over the phone. So that profoundly changed everything. Um, I was when I growing up, like my dad had two sons. So I was the only child of my mom and the youngest child of my dad. That is a deadly combination of uh, princess mentality. So I that was my whole life until that happened. And then it was 21 grow up fast. And you need to figure out what you're going to do. And I just didn't like at 21. I was just I I guess something just switched in me that I wasn't going to mess around anymore. It wasn't going to be about the easy way. It wasn't going to be about, 
Um, the way that gave me the most pleasure, it was going to be about working hard, believing in something and making sure that I fight for it because I learned so quickly that day. And through those course of those hard years, that life is so short. So that really changed my outlook on everything. And somebody told me one time, like after, because a lot of people just don't know if you don't know, like, you know, he's in a better place and you're like, shut up. Um, or the people that are like, you know what, this really sucks. But my aunt said this to me, like when you lose your left arm, you will always miss your left arm, but your right arm will be like twice as strong. And I think I've like carried that mentality, um, because I'll always miss him and I always grieve him. And there are times like it's actually this month that he died. Um, so April's always a little bit hard, but then I also realize that I have to be grateful for the lessons he's given me. It's made me a stronger person. It's made me really fight for what I believe in. And it's made me like really who I am today, which is a lot more of a resilient, grittier person than it ever was. I ever was before. I, uh, I mean, I know this about you, obviously, and it's just heartbreaking, but I, I have to say, and I spent time one-on-one with your mom when you're not there. And, um, I just, he's proud of you, Shanna. He would be so proud of everything you've done and everything you've become and how just how, what a fighter you are. And um, I know that like, it <laughs> doesn't make me feel any better when people say that to me either, but. Oh, but that means a lot, you know, especially coming from you, Kara, because it is like something like, and having like you and Adam in those times where we go up to Estes Park and cry <laughs> about being a part of the dead dad club, you know, they're like such therapeutic times, you know? And you need that. Like, you kind of have to find humor in it. And I know it sounds like stick to the, like, you know, saying you're a dead dad's club. But then, like, finding some, like, just humor and relief and support. I mean, like, you know, having you a part of this journey has been obviously so important. Because I'm, you know, I'll, like, hear a song and I'll text you, like, crying. Oh, my God. I know. (laughs) I have to be comfortable. Like, today's not my day. Today's the day I'm going to be super sad and eat a lot of crap, you know? Yeah. Have to go with those, like really like sit in your feelings. And I think I've like learned more of that. Like, okay, today's the day to be strong today. Not so much. Totally. But it's definitely made you a better person. Of course, we'd rather have him here, but it has made you a really good person. So Chris, I'm not going to ask you about the dead dad club because I don't think you're in it. Thank God. Um, But you also are a very passionate person, a very caring person, what has it in life? Can you think of an incident that has really formed who you are, or who really, what really changed the trajectory of who you became? Well, first of all, I just want to say, Shanna, you're an inspiration for me. Oh, As somebody who already has a high bar for myself, you, you raise my own bar for myself because of how high the bar you have for yourself is. And if, you know, if you have your dad to thank for that, then I thank your dad too. So his, his legacy extends well beyond you because that's something I've learned in our relatively short relationship is that the standard is high and you should maintain that for yourself. And so it's raised my bar too. And so I appreciate that about you in terms of me, the, the, the moment that comes to mind for me, and I have a lot of my parents to thank for this is when I was, I was kind of a nerd growing up as 
some people might suspect. I went to <laughs> I went to uh, I went to a a, a ma- what's called a ma- in, at least in Texas what's called a magnet middle school for you know those that are you know advanced academically. And so when I was in eighth grade, I had to make a decision between choosing the quote unquote regular high school and the quote unquote magnet high school which was for those kids that had shown you know, advancement in acad- academics. And my parents let me make that decision. And I did really well in middle school. And the expectation from my guidance counselor, from our school principal, from my teachers in middle school was that I would continue on in that program and go to the magnet high school. And, but for whatever reason, it wasn't that simple for me. I was a a pretty balanced kid, you know, I played soccer, I did other things. And so my parents gave me that decision to make on my own, whether, you know, to choose this school or that school. And at the time, I didn't really realize how powerful that was. You know, I think most parents would just say, of course, you know, go to the better school, quote unquote, better school. That's, you know, something you should do. You're a smart kid. But they gave me the decision to make on my own. And I ended up choosing the regular high school, which was, you know, again, seemingly insignificant. But I remember after making that decision and submitting my choice sheet, I got called into my counselor guidance counselor's office. I got called into my student, my school principal's office to talk about this decision. And they told me that I was making the biggest mistake in my life and that I should, of course, go to the better high school. And I remember looking him in the face and saying, no, I don't think that's right for me as an eighth grader. And that, as I look back on it, became a really formative decision for me because I've made a lot of other decisions in my life that went against the obvious choice or the grain, including decisions in business. You know, I was before I became a running coach, as you said, Kara, you know, I was in a corporate world as a management consultant, making a lot of money doing something very different. But I gave that up because I had a passion for coaching people and changing lives through the sport of running. And, but I, but I look back on that decision as something that gave me the power and the permission to go against the grain, to choose the non-obvious choice to, you know, stand up for what I thought was right for me. And for that, you know, I thank my parents because they let me make that choice and they were fully supportive when I made it, even though I think, Perhaps in today's world, you know, the the natural inclination for parents would be to say, no, of course, go to that that better school. So that's a moment that I look back on. And I've seen that type of moment happen in other ways in my life where I made a decision between the obvious choice and maybe going against the grain. And I kind of trace it back to that one decision. I love it. It, get, it taught you early on to trust your gut and to believe in yourself and to know that you know the right path for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So now I want to know, I like being in charge. Um, (laughs) Now I want to know when each of you first even realized that doping in sport was a thing. Um, Was it in your, your own sports of either soccer or running, or was it in a different sport? And how did it make you feel? Shanna, you can go first. I learned about it my freshman year at CU in college. Um, 
the boys, especially on the team, would talk about it, you know, especially EPO. It was pretty rampant during that time. I mean, and we had alumni like Adam, you know, running during that that EPO era, um, especially with like, you know, the East Africans coming in with that. And so that was very prevalent. Um, but I don't think I really thought much of it because it was on the professional side, not on the college side. So I never even thought about it in my own world. I just thought about it in this, like, in this context of, you know, like the professional world. Um, and it really didn't become important to me until you, um, on a very deeper level. I think that doing what is right has always mattered greatly to me. And, um, but when it really enters your world, and especially when you feel like you have empathy and you think about other people and when you are really sitting in the fire with one of your best friends in the whole entire world, and maybe she calls you and she tells you that something is going to happen and you don't, you don't know whether you should talk about it publicly or not. And everything that you experienced in your days um, with the Nike Oregon project, then it became really real to me. And I think that, what you probably don't talk about and you know like what those days remind me of is so many of like just even friends or old teammates were like you know don't take this on they're scary it's gonna you know like it's gonna affect your agency at the time it's going to you know like you really don't know you weren't there but for me it was like so crystal clear there was no way in hell that we were not going to stand by you and be in those trenches and anybody that has been in those trenches with you, like well beyond, you know, you saw the file, like showing that Alberto did cheat. Like it was so crystal clear that it was honest and it was against everything that you and Adam stood for. And it was a hundred percent real and the pain that you guys felt. And even like just having like friends, like shy away from it because it was hard was really disappointing to me, but it also made me want to like step in further with you because it was, it was scary. Yes. And it was hard. Oh my gosh. The times like, I wish I could have taken some more of that pain for you, Kara. Um, and just being in the lowest of lows with you and still knowing that you were fighting for what is right made me want to fight that much harder. And I think it just comes down to this moral decision I think we are so attuned to just wanting to like put it in our blinders and I get it right like ignorance is bliss and you don't want to know you don't want it to ruin the sport that you have you don't want it to ruin your fandom of Lance Armstrong or whoever it may be but it's reality and I think that so many people shy away with in it when you need to step right into it because if we all step head into it then we can actually do something about it. And I think that was like the biggest lesson I've learned with you. And then watching you go through that and, and so many clean athletes like Jenny and Emma and Allison and everything that happened to Alicia. And I was like sick and freaking tired of talking. Like, you'll know that with me. Like, I just don't want to talk about it. I want to do something about it or it's not going to be my problem. Like, you know, like I can't do anything for COVID-19. I don't have the means. I'm not a doctor but I like want to support everybody that can. But this is my profession. 
is running. So we can do something about it. So why not do something about it? And I think that's where obviously the passion really birthed was through everything that you went through. hundred percent. Well, you've been my biggest cheerleader. I mean, besides Adam, of course. Um, and just to conclude there, you formed the Clean Sport Collective. That was your idea. And you and Kevin Rutherford and your husband, Kevin Burnett, were the ones. Um, and wait, someone else I'm forgetting. Ramin. Ramin. But it was really your idea. And you brought that to life, which is why we're, we all know each other now and why we share a message with everybody. So I can never thank you enough for being just so incredibly supportive because I needed it. I needed it bad. Um, and you were deserving of it. Oh, well, thank you, Chris. I want to know when you first learned about it and how it made you feel and what sport it was that you found out that people doped in sport. Yeah. The first memory of it for me came pretty early on. I remember watching the 1988 Olympics And I remember that was the first Olympics as a kid that I was really aware of and being really excited watching it. I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of really all sport. You know, you can, I can get excited about any sport from figure skating to golf, to running, to soccer, whether I played or not, I can get excited about it. And so as a kid, I was super excited watching that Olympics, being exposed to it really for the first time of being aware And I remember all of the hype leading up to the 100-meter final for that 1988 Olympics. And I remember all of the talk, at least in the U.S., of Carl Lewis and his his accolades. And then going into that final, expecting an American victory. And then seeing Ben Johnson just absolutely crush everybody. And I remember being devastated watching that happen. Of course, at the time, not knowing that you know, Ben Johnson would be busted later and he was busted, you know, within the Olympics and, and lost his title almost right away. And so that was the first memory I have of being exposed to a cheater. And of course, at the time I thought, well, this is a simple good and evil story. You know, the evil Canadian won and was cheating and therefore shouldn't get his title. And of course that elevated everybody else. Now I know it's much more complicated, (laughs) than that because you know that was maybe one of the dirtiest olympic finals ever but that was my first exposure to it and i I remember again one being devastated that an american lost and then two being devastated in a different way that a cheater had won because there was also some relief that came with the fact that you know this cheater got busted not knowing of course the full extent of it at the time and so that was my my first experience knowing about doping and then i got into it again associated with cycling with lance because i was a big fan of his i read his book his first book not about the bike and was absolutely fascinated by it and i remember following his story and what's interesting on that one is that you know a lot of people became devastated when he finally confessed but i actually knew or thought i knew that he was a cheater well before he confessed. And the moment for me that stood out as I think back that made me question that this was real was when his teammate, George Hincapie actually won a mountain stage, one of the toughest mountain stages in the Pyrenees in the, in the tour. And I don't know, this may have been like 2005 or something like that. And Hincapie wins. He's, you know, this domestique that typically helps out on flat stages. He's not unknown as a, as a mountain rider he wins the stage against another mountain climber athlete. And 
I remember at the time being so excited about it and wondering what Lance would do when he saw George for the first time, you know, after this big victory for the team, thinking that he would be elated for him. And and then when they showed their inner their first interaction after he had won, Lance almost seemed mad or disappointed in the moment. And I remember thinking, that's weird to me. Uh, it was just a weird little moment where I thought for sure he would be so happy for him, but he wasn't. And that just planted a seed for me that something's not right here. And eventually I started putting the pieces together. And then when Tyler Hamilton and Floyd Landis started telling their stories in the detail that they were telling it before Lance confessed officially, I, I put it all together and I just said, and I just thought, well, he was mad in that moment, not because George, you know, he George did something wrong, but because, well, maybe he did do something wrong. He had won and he shouldn't have. He wasn't supposed to win. He may have, you know, given them up, so to speak, because he did something that wasn't supposed to be possible unless you were cheating. And as I reflect back on that, I think that's exactly what he was. He was mad at George because he could have exposed them for winning a stage he wasn't supposed to win. And that for me was a moment where I started to open my eyes about it. And there was a period after that where I became very jaded, not just with cycling, but with all sport, as of course we've had our, our issues in running as well. Until I realized, and honestly, I have to credit you a lot for this, Kara. One of the things that always impressed me about you before I got to know you was the fact that even though you'd seen the dark side of the sport, you were still a fan. And I remember trying to figure out why that was and how could I still capture that myself. And it was through that that I realized that as a fan, you get to choose. You get to choose who you root for, who you're excited about, who you invest your energy in. And and as I became more educated on doping as a topic, I start to believe, started to believe that I could at least discern who I thought was real and who wasn't with all the factors that you might see out there. And it gave me the the knowledge and being more educated gave me the power to know and to believe in who I thought I could be a fan with and who I couldn't. And so now as a as a as somebody who is very educated on the topic, I get to pick and choose who I root for. And yes, I can't know for sure who's clean and who's dirty, unless of course they've been convicted, but I can look at all the evidence and I can then decide who I invest my time in and who I invest my energy in. And I feel pretty good about who I get to invest my time and energy in. And when they win, I get to be really excited. That's awesome. I mean, Carl Lewis Ben Johnson was 84. So that seed was planted early on for you. What did you think when Shanna and I told you we wanted to start a podcast for the Clean Sport Collective? <laughs> I mean, you actually kind of jumped in like right away, but were you, was there a hesitation there of like these women are crazy? I mean, you seem to be all in. I mean, it's to me, it's a weird thing because, you know, I don't know, I don't know necessarily what I believe about everything happens for a reason. I, you know, to me, the jury's still a little bit out on that, but it seemed like this perfect intersection in that I had had this parallel journey with you. Obviously, yours is more deep and and more on the inside, but I had this parallel journey of developing a passion for this topic for a long time that well preceded our first interactions. And so when you guys approached me about doing this, it was a no-brainer because I was it was already something I was excited about. It's already a topic 
that I think is important and that I wanted to invest my time in. And as somebody who, who has sometimes questioned the importance of what I do, you know, I'm a running coach and some people think that's a silly pursuit. And I can tell you it's not, even though maybe on the surface it is because, you know, what I'm involved with is life change and, you know, it goes well beyond the running. So I've come to terms with that myself, but I've often struggled with finding a topic that is more philanthropic that I'm really passionate about that I can uniquely invest in. And this seemed like the perfect thing. And I was excited about it right away. That's awesome. Well, we we can't thank you enough because Shannon and I had this idea for a while, but neither of us had like the the street cred to like get it going or even the knowledge to get it going. So it's been quite an adventure of only a year. Has it even been a year? Not quite. It's We're not approaching June 1st. June 1st will be our one year mark. Well, it's been amazing so far. So, okay, now let's, I'm going to stop interviewing you guys and let's take some questions from our audience, our listeners, and let's sort of chat openly for a little bit here. Um, some questions that were written in. So do you guys, is there any particular question you want to start with? Take it, Kara. Okay, great. Um, well, so there were some questions about the virtual, um, new virtual testing that USADA is trying to start um, with quite a few big name athletes, including Lily King and Emma Coburn and Noah Lyles. Um, and it's a drug test to continue drug testing during this time of quarantine. And you get sent the sample kit. You're alerted on a certain day when you have to do it. You have to record, I think, pretty much everything but the peen, maybe. Um, you have to take the temperature of the urine, uh, seal it up, and send it back. So I'm curious of what your thoughts are, both of you, on this new um, protocol. Well, first of all, kudos to USADA for leading the way. I mean, I think in general, as a national testing organization, they lead the way in catching the dirty athletes and maybe the most committed to that globally. So kudos to them for making it happen because I know it's not easy and it's hard right now. For me, it, you know, it's a urine only test, which obviously limits what they're actually able to test for. And so while I think it's a great thing and symbolically it's a great thing, I think it still leaves the door really wide open for those that want to, you know, to cheat the system. So I guess I love it. I love the fact that they're doing it. I love the fact that they're committed to it. And I think symbolically it's a big deal, but I do think it leaves much to be desired in terms of the real protocol that you'd want to see right now. Yeah, I would agree. I think that the, you know, the best, businesses that I'm seeing right now through all of this are, you know, create the ones that are being really creative and thinking outside of the box and thinking of new ways to advance their company, especially all those companies that are in person. So I definitely give them kudos there too, but I do think there's a big accountability factor missing here. And that is that person standing with you, you know, and doing the drug testing. So I think it's awesome that they've got it up the ground. Um, and I think that the biggest thing with all companies is to put something out there. Just like clean sport. I mean, like, I feel like I could relate, right? Like, 
you put something out there, it's not going to be perfect, but you can perfect it along the way. So you saw to put something out there. I think they have a lot of perfecting to do, but that's not the goal is to put something out perfect right now. I think the biggest goal is getting something and making sure that they take the necessary steps along the way. And just, you know, knowing Travis Tigard and the team there, I think that they will do that. Yeah, I agree. I, it's obviously not a perfect situation. I was really encouraged to see Allison Felix and Noah Lyles and Lily King and Emma like jump on it and want to be a part of it. I thought that was really cool because I do feel like athletes are at a place where um, it hurts them to have no drug testing, right? I mean, not only are could other people cheat, but they can't they can't maintain their biological passport and prove that they are still doing it the right way. Um, so I, I like the concept. I do think we have a ways to go. But I also do think, you know, I'm not one person that thinks, oh, in the U.S., we're just totally clean. Um, I know we have plenty of problems, but I am al- I am also encouraged that they're taking this step. And I, I hope that other countries will follow suit, um, although I, it, it would pr- produce a challenge in some other areas where maybe you know, you can't get internet service or whatever it might be where someone can't necessarily be watching you the whole time, but. Right. This is actually, yeah, it's really good for the clean athlete. I feel like, like, yeah, yeah, Uh, it is really good for the clean athlete. One of the things that I've seen uh, talked about, which I think is really interesting discussion for this time is what do you do with suspensions? If, if people can't compete and yet you have these outstanding suspensions where, people who are currently on suspension who would have missed the 2020 Olympics can now come back next year and compete because of the time lag. Is that fair? And I really agree with the perspective that some have shared, which is that those suspensions should also be paused and resumed next year so that those athletes can't come back a year later and compete in the Olympics. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I, I agree that it's unfair, um, but I just think there's no way to do that. I mean, the time is the time, and they just they just won the lottery, right? I mean, they just won the lottery that their suspension will end and makes them eligible for the 2021 Olympics. Um, I mean, a two-year ban is a two-year ban, a four-year ban is a four-year ban, and you know, you're one of the only people in the world that's happy about the pandemic, I think, at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I mean, that's just how I feel. Like, yeah. I think Uh, it's a good time, though, to rethink, though. Rethink a lot in terms of just, like, you know, like, our the bands about, you know, I mean, really doubling down on events and why they matter and athletes and why they matter. And I think if we're not coming to the cream rising to the top, then we're like failing in this. You know, I think that this is a good like restructuring time that we can also do because events right now, man, I feel for them. Uh, It's going to, you know, it's going to look different and it's going to take a while for a lot of just, you know, just our everyday participant to feel comfortable. So it has to all mean a lot. Right. I know it's a, it's a, it's a crazy time. We have a lot of questions about the biological passport and how that works. And if you can opt in, you, you really can't. You're selected by your uh, uh, your doping agency of your country. I think we had Scott Fobble on here. Um, 
And he was is not in the testing pool. He was one of the favorites to make our Olympic team in the marathon here in America. And so it's sort of up to your um, anti-doping federation, honestly, to see if you're in it or not. Um, it would be interesting to see these biological passports after people are allowed to go back, right? I mean, like, we, we host this podcast because we believe that people, we want to give clean athletes a chance to speak their mind because we believe that people are cheating. So there's certainly going to be some sinister activity going on right now, I would think. And the biological passport is so important in this equation. It's been responsible for catching a lot of recent athletes. One thing I wonder, Kara, as a part of that is, you know, Daniel Wanjuru was, it was announced this week that he's been provisionally suspended because of a biological passport violation he was the 2017 london marathon winner and that's happened several times recently where biological passport has caught athletes when you see that news kara i wonder what what you think you know i i personally think it's as good as a positive on a drug test i mean your biological passport it's not just like they're like checking your ferritin levels your iron level and they're like oh it went up you know like they are monitoring all of these different blood levels, your hemoglobin levels, all these levels that can raise a little bit here and there based on if you go to altitude or if you're dehydrated. But, you know, to a certain extent, they stay pretty level and you'll see spikes in them when someone is blood doping or taking EPO um, or your testosterone, epitestosterone ratio. And so the biological passport has become so important because athletes have gotten really, really smart. There's a lot of money involved and they know how to not trigger a positive. But if you see a, a random fluctuation in some of these levels, you know that that's not biologically how their body is made. And so I'm a huge fan of the biological passport. I feel like without it, we would have so many less positives. I mean, we only catch one to 2% of athletes per year without the biological passport. I would, I don't know, but I would imagine that number falls <laughs> so much. Um, I know some people question it and they, and I saw someone on my Twitter saying, well, with this, with this biological passport, anyone could test positive. And you know, like, that's the point. Um, <laughs> it holds you accountable. It's your biology and they're mapping your biology. And when you have these crazy outliers, they know that actually that's not how your biology works. Well, and they're also looking at movement, like several standard deviation movements off the average. So it's not that little changes will cause a positive. These are big changes that we're Huge talking changes. about. Yeah. That could only be fueled by something artificial. And so, you know, I don't I don't know the exact odds on a false positive there, but I can guarantee you they're not handing out a suspension without some massive change that would be artificially driven on a bi biological passport. And, you know, we saw this leaked report by uh, Fancy Bears years ago that had a list of quite a few athletes that were marked as likely doping. And it had to do with their biological passport. And then it said on there, and we never should have known that, but then it said on there, you know, more information needed. So every once in a while, an athlete might have an irregular level. That doesn't necessarily land you in the slammer. You know what I mean? Then they follow up and they do more testing. So I personally am a huge fan of the biological passport. And that's why this time right now is scary for athletes because they aren't building their biological passport. They aren't able to prove that they're continuing to train clean and continuing to do everything the right way because they're unable to be tested right now. True. All right. I have a good one on our Instagram really quick. Okay. 
What can those of us who are non-professional runners do to support and promote clean sport? A lot of the conversations related to clean sport are about performance enhancing substances and shoes, but can you talk about something that is more common in the non-pro running scene? People cutting race courses or cheating during the race. Um, it seems like more people are getting busted for cutting courses because they want an age group award or a Boston qualifier. I've even seen people run with someone else's bib to help them qualify for a faster way, for example. It's so frustrating. would love to hear your guys' input and thoughts about this. Chris, take it. Yeah. <laughs> well, as a, as a non-professional runner, I will, I will answer that question. First of all, sign the pledge yourself and yeah. have the integrity that you need to have in the race results that you put out there so that you can personally believe in them. I think that's critical. And the more people create examples of that, the better. So that's, to me, step one. Step two is support the brands that are supporting clean sport. And we have those listed on our website so that you can spend your money, vote with your dollars to support the brands that are doing, that are supporting athletes that are doing things the right way. That is critical. And, you know, I think many people think, well, my little dollars don't matter, but when they add up together, they do matter. And we've seen it firsthand over the last year with brands coming on board, signing the pledge because they've, they've actually gotten pressure from the consumer. So that's huge. Third thing to me is to be educated. You know, I, I think there's two types of fans that I worry about in this conversation. One is the fan that's super jaded, that thinks that everybody's cheating or that sees these reports about positives and then just wants to turn the TV off or not watch that. And I completely understand that reaction. I've been there myself. That is a concern because sport can be so powerful if we can invest in it. So that's one person that I worry about. The second person I worry about is the person that puts their blinders on and who, you know, watches anyway and believes anyway without really any discernment because they don't want to know about what might be going on, you know, the wrong ways. And I think there's a middle ground that to me I've found personally as really powerful, which is that educated fan who listens to our podcast, who reads all the detail that they can about doping, who develops their own ability to discern who they can believe in and who they cannot believe in. And then invest in those athletes that they can believe in, as I was talking about earlier, because that can be such a powerful connection and message, especially when those athletes have success anyway. You know, for me personally, it's, you know, the Des Lindens of the world who I've followed for a long time, but, you know, I can believe in, not just because she came on this podcast, but because all the things that she's done, not just in training, but how she talks about it, indicate that she's doing it the right way. And so when she wins Boston two years ago today, you know, we can all celebrate from the highest peaks because she's a clean athlete that may have beaten dirty athletes. And that to me is almost sweeter than, you know, giving up on it completely or completely putting the blinders on. And so I think the educated fan is so important. And then the last thing I would say before I let you guys jump in is that we can also use our voice. You know, I think part of the problem with the governance structure in running especially is the fact that all of the power has resided at the top in the what's now called the world athletics formerly the IAAF they've controlled the world and and the IOC has controlled the world the International Olympic Committee and WADA the World Anti-Doping Agency they've controlled the world and they've controlled the narrative 
And what we've tried to do with this podcast is flip that on its head and say, no, the athletes can control the narrative and the fans through the athletes can help control the narrative. And by, you know, tweeting things and communicating and engaging in the conversation in a way that demands something more, we can make a difference. Maybe not as an individual fan, but as a collective, which is exactly what the name implies. And I've seen it already working in the year I've been involved with you guys. And it's, it's powerful and it can be so much more powerful if people are willing to engage. I feel like I have a two part thing to that. Number one, I feel like a lesson from the Bob Kennedy episode last week is I think, remember when all of those uh, letters to, you know, your past self were getting so popular, right? Like write a letter to your past self. I feel like Bob flipped that on its head and write a letter to your future self. Like, do you want to write a letter to your future self 20 years from now, thinking and beating yourself up that you did it the wrong way? In any way, whether it's cutting the race course or it's a professional athlete taking performance enhancing drugs, I'd love to see that letter surface, a letter to our future selves. And second, though, I feel like that's those are awesome points, Chris, and I love every single one of them. But something for us to think about at the Clean Sport Collective is that we have a policy in place for events that if somebody tests positive, they should never enter that event again. But what should we be doing, though, about those amateur athletes that are cutting the race course or putting on a different bib? Should we have the same standards for them, not letting them come to the event again? I think that's a really interesting point that she brings up. It is really interesting. And that would be a question, obviously, for the meet directors. I mean, we don't have the power to say, you can't let this person in. But if a meet director is saying, hey, we signed this clean sport pledge and we're saying that anyone that's tested positive can't compete here, that doesn't just mean elites. Right. Right? That means anyone that's tested positive isn't allowed to compete there. And I think this also segues well into people wanting to know what brands we would love to see on on our list. And I just want to say that we had a we had a board meeting in January and my dream is that it is the norm that you are actually ostracized honestly if you are not on our list. And yes, I would love to see Nike on this list because they are our industry leader. And imagine if they signed this and they said we are only going to support clean athletes. And if you test positive, we unfortunately cannot fund you anymore. Um, it, I mean, it would be complicated for them because they'd have, have to let go of NFL players and track athletes and so many different athletes across so many different sports. But what a message would that send to the world and to our youth and to the future? Um, but my pie in the sky is that everybody signs the pledge and not just every brand, but every team, every industry. I mean, I know we really go dive deep on running because that's what we're good at. But like before I die, if an NFL team signed our pledge, I would just be so happy. So true. I totally agree. Like number one, Nike, of course, like hands down. And, you know, like they've done a lot of wrong, obviously, we're not going to negate that or sugarcoat that for anybody, but they have the most potential and people when whatever Nike does, everybody looks to them yes. and they have the best potential for positive change in any brand, in any sporting company in the whole entire world. They can do so much good. And I think they have the potential to do it. I really do. 
Uh, me too. I think that would be so awesome. If they sign the clean sport pledge, just kill me now. I mean, really, <laughs> that'd be so awesome. I'll, I'll go running around naked. I'll be so excited. <laughs> I saw I saw a stat this week that Nike market share within the teen market, I don't know exactly what ages they were talking about, but teen market was 47%. And I did an internship at Nike when I was in grad school. So I worked there for a summer. And I remember a lot of the conversation that we had there was about capturing the youth so that they would grow up wearing Nike. And if you get them young, then they grow up wearing Nike. And so Nike now has 47%, which was a jump over the previous measurement of that stat. 40% of today's teens are wearing Nike. So they have so much power over the future of so many things, not just sport. And you're right. If they sign the pledge, then it would make a huge difference. And to me, you know, if you're going to Nike, then you also have to talk about Under Armour and Adidas and the other major brands within the footwear and apparel space because they are right there with them. But yeah, I mean, it would make a huge difference. It It would set the tone. Absolutely. And I mean, take it or love it or hate it. They are the industry leader and they overnight could change the culture of all sports across the world. And so if you're listening, please contact me, please sign the pledge because we will celebrate you. Okay. Totally. Okay. So just a couple more questions before we go, because my son is telling me he's hungry. (laughs) He just came in and was like, I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Just two more questions I want to ask you guys. Um, Somebody asked me if someone were, is there a redemptive path for those who dope to race again? What would it look like? Example, like a three-year ban and two years of clean testing. Do we believe, do you believe, do we believe that there is a path there for someone to return to competition after they have failed a test, essentially? I think think North Face Endurance Challenge does it the best. They allow everybody to compete, but anybody that is tested positive will not be counted in the race results. Sorry, like it's a it is a fact that it is always in your system and you just, you can't, you know, like I, I feel, you know, I know it sounds harsh sometimes and a hundred percent forgiveness, right? Like we want the Tyler Hamiltons. We want the Floyd Landis's on in the world to come on because they can do so much good through everything that they've experienced and every wrong decision we've all made them, but it's a hundred percent unfair to any clean athlete to be, listed in the race results is my opinion. I 100% agree with that. I'm a big proponent of lifetime bans. I think that's really the only way you need to the most severe punishment possible. And under a a regime where you have lifetime bans, that would not allow anybody to find redemption. And I think that's really the only way to dissuade those from taking that step, or at least one of the only ways. So I agree completely with Shanna on this. I also think about the fact that, you know, those athletes, they have an advantage that's permanent. They have an advantage that's permanent. And so it doesn't matter when they compete, how long their ban is, when they come back, they have an advantage, whether they're still taking it or not. And and that's something that has to be kept in mind. And so once you stick that needle in your arm, or once you ingest that substance that you shouldn't ingest, unfortunately, it's over. And I go back to what you've said and Frank Shorter has said, which is that this is a privilege, not a right. And once you take that step, you've lost that privilege. You can still compete in a way that allows you to participate, but you can't compete for the top spot. 
Yeah, totally agree. It's it's not a right. It is a privilege. There's rules that you agree to when you come to the start line or, or decide to do a sport. And to be clear, you can still be an amazing person who made a terrible choice. And there's a lot of forgiveness in that. And like Shanna said, maybe you can still come and participate, but your results just, they don't count. And um, okay, we all feel strongly about that. Okay, ready? Final question. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Okay. Who's on your, oh my God, if only list of people you'd love to join you on a future episode, past or present, coach or athlete, anything goes. Okay. So I have mine and okay. it was different when I, when we were like starting this episode, but Chris, you actually brought it to my mind because I was never a Lance Armstrong fan. I mean, my husband worked at Bella News, so I just wasn't, I just thought he was like just a not nice person. So I, but I understand why people got so upset and I remembered mine. Oh my gosh, that I got so upset. I had her poster on my wall in high school, Marion Jones. Oh, that was devastating to me. I was so devastated. I watched every Oprah interview. I watched everything. I couldn't stop watching it. And it really did like kind of sink my heart a little bit. So any athlete on there, like little girls are watching, little boys are watching, but I would love to have her on. I would love it. That's mine. Um, my list is like way too long, I think. <laughs> I want Michael Phelps on here. I want Marion Jones on here. Absolutely. She broke my heart. And I watched her 30 for 30, and I encourage everyone to, to look that up on YouTube. It is so powerful. Um, I want Lily King on here. I want some really current athletes. I want to, I don't know, there's so many Matt people. Too. Matt Horton. Yeah. On. And I just want, I want to see, um, you know, even like when Bob Kennedy was talking about, you know, Kim McDonald's no longer with us, but he was talking about him saying, like, think about the future. Like, I want to talk to so many coaches. Like, I think coaches are so interesting because they help form the culture. Um, I don't know. I could go on forever. There's too many people for me. I'm sorry. So if we could get Alberto Salazar, would you have him on? <laughs> Speaking of coaches. <laughs> um. If he was prepared to be redemptive. So is he not going to then? Um, he's not appealing his decision. He's taking what he was given. Let's assume that for a second. Would you be open to having him on? You know, I don't know that I could do the interviewing, but I, I, I do believe I do believe that we learn from people who made the wrong choice. Like having Tyler on was super powerful. That's how we learn what the pressures were and why people made those choices um, I want to be clear, though, too, with that question, that when we have convicted <laughs> dopers on this show, because we've had this question, why are you giving them a platform? Legitimate question, right? Yeah. Like we are here to celebrate clean athletes and help do our part for awareness and education for clean sport. That is our number one goal. So when we had Tyler Hamilton on, there was some backlash and rightfully so. But I want to make a clear point that there is remorse and that there is a person working with the future to make it better because of their past like transgressions. I think Tyler does that so well. I can't say on this a hundred percent that Lance Armstrong does that well. So as right. of right now, we will not have him on as of right now, Alberto Salazar is not on. If he changes and he's here to like help educate and help coaches not make the same decisions he has made, 
A hundred percent. We will have him on. Maybe Kara won't do the interview, but if there's true remorse, happy to have him, but it will not come unless that is there. <laughs> I will tell you right now, if there was a full confession and a public apology and a personal apology, I would, I would do that interview. I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> That's aspirational. I was going to say, I would love to have Greg Lamond on Ooh, because he is someone who won the tour in a doped era against an athlete that theoretically was doped, at least from wall accounts. So I want to talk to him. He obviously was outspoken against Lance as well during his career. So I want to know if I want to know if I can believe in Greg Lamont basically. And so I'd love to talk to him. Ooh, that's a good one. That is that's a, good, a really good one. I'll get on oh, all right, guys, well, we got to wrap this up, but I want you guys to each take 30 seconds. What is your hope for the future of the Clean Sport Collective? Shanna, go. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think that this is awesome, and I love the podcast part of it. I think that we have so much potential, even though we're on pause right now because we can't ask of anything, of going further. Really touching that youth. I think that like going in in like youth camps and schools and having education and awareness and just like Nike's playbook, right? Start them young. Start them young, honestly. Like start the foundations of why clean sport matters because I think when you're young and you're just like, yeah, yeah, you know, they cheated, but like really drilling down to why it matters and helping really transform and um, bring a light to that that topic because it is important and sometimes I think it gets kind of pushed to the side of importance issues and I mean Nike Under Armour Adidas all sign and we rethink about what it is about being an athlete and having that privilege and who we are as brands who now have a little bit of tighter budgets really thinking about who we're spending money on like really truly why are we investing our dollars it goes so much further than that and I think times like this can really like bring about good positive change. And I, and I hope that's in our future. I agree with all of that. And I would add what you said, Kara, back in our board meeting earlier this year, which is that this aspiration that every sports league require all of its players to sign the pledge from pro football to baseball, to golf, to whatever sport it may be, signs the pledge and agrees that clean sport is a priority if we can get to that place, then I can believe in the future of our sport. Okay, Kara. Oh, well, my, I, you guys already summed it up. I just, <laughs> I mean, I just want everyone to sign the pledge. I want everyone to care. And I really do want to start activating our youth stuff. Um, we can't do it right now, obviously, but that's something that was really high on our priority list in January when we talked about the future. So just like you said, starting them young and making sure it's a priority from the beginning and introducing them to amazing, cool, clean athletes that are really passionate um, that they can look up to. Because you know what? I can still name the athletes that I worshipped when I was little. And um, some of them have failed me. And that's been devastating. Um, but the ones that haven't failed me, um, I just love them even more now as an adult. So totally. Yeah, I'm young. All right. Well, you guys are the three best friends anyone could ever have. I Thank love you, guys. you. Love you. Good job. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. So there you go. 
Kara leading the way on that one. Hopefully you didn't mind us taking a diversion from our interviews to let you get to know us a little bit better. Thanks to Kara and Shanna for that one. That was a ton of fun and hopefully you all enjoyed it as well. Thanks to you guys for listening. As always, you can check us out at cleansport.org and follow us on social media at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco on Twitter or Instagram if you'd like to join in on the conversation and maybe get your questions in on our next roundtable like this. Otherwise, keep listening, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.